Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Elizabeth Bryany. Elizabeth is the founder and principal at Culture Keys. Uh, Previous to that, at GM for 24 years and various roles the author of numerous books, including Culture Change for Business Anthropology Perspective, The Cultural Dimensions of Global Business, and the award-winning Transforming Culture. Also a past secretary of the American Anthropology Association, the past president of the National Association of the Practice of Anthropology, and the 2020 recipient of the Malinowski Award from the Society for Applied Anthropology. So Elizabeth, a great honor to have you on. Appreciate everything you've done for the community. So would you start by letting everybody know how you came into anthropology? Sure. Well, thanks for that introduction, Matt. Uh, Yes, I came into anthropology because I had a professor who I adored and who persuaded me that Latin American studies was something that would be a fabulous way in which I could learn about anthropology and uh, eventually uh, use anthropology as a tool uh, to do a variety of different things. And were those variety of different things, you know, anything business at that time? At the time that I was an undergraduate, uh, no, I did not have a sense of what I would be doing. I, I suspected that I eventually would become a professor because that was the only role model that existed in those days. Um, and so when I entered graduate school, I suspected that um, that would be the life that I would have. Uh, and, and that held true right up until my very last year of graduate school, where I was um, uh, involved in writing my dissertation, uh, and then eventually on the job market. And so, at what point did you start to develop your interest in organizational culture? Was that after you started working, or as you were looking for jobs, did that start to sort of bubble up? Uh, I think that I got into organizational culture through through work culture. For my master's thesis, I had written about janitors as an occupational culture. 
And then while I was in graduate school, I also did a study on Catholic sisters. Uh, my dissertation research was on farm workers. And so those three very different groups of people um, enabled me to learn something about how work got done in whatever occupational group um, it was. And then I um, had an opportunity to interview at General Motors, and there they asked me to prepare a seminar that included a point about why General Motors should hire an anthropologist. And so in order to respond to that point, I basically told them, look, you know, I've been, I've spent the last several years of my life trying to understand occupational culture, occupational differences, um, work issues generally. Um, and frankly, I don't really see much difference between studying designers and engineers uh, in comparison with Catholic sisters and farm workers. And they bought the argument. And I still believe that argument today. Work is work. Yeah, so at the time... Um yeah, I assume you saw a lot of similarities between the Catholic sisters, the farm workers, you know, et cetera. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I, I was basically developing an understanding of work, how work gets done, uh, what the incentives are for doing work or the motivating factors for doing work, um, how work uh, often is collaborative, uh, that you need other people in order to do whatever it is that you do. Uh, in life, um, uh, that um, that work can be a very fulfilling uh, aspect of your life. I mean, all of these things held across um, held across uh, these groups of people, and um, and I suspected that that just entering into a corporate setting, I wouldn't really see much difference. And honestly, I don't think that I did. And so I don't want to jump too far ahead, but since we're sort of you know, talking about your observations of work, you say that you didn't see much of a difference between the work you're doing in your graduate program and then when you were at GM. I'm curious though, have you seen much of a difference over time, right? As sort of, you know, the economy is changing and maybe you know, maybe it appears the style of work is changing, or are you still seeing sort of many of the same themes just maybe played out in dig different ways, such as more digitally? I, I would say the latter. I would say that um, work is something that is part of most people's lives. Um, it, it's, um, it's critically important and central to their identity because they earn money through their work. Um, they raise children through their work or at least um, um, have a way to sustain themselves and their households uh, through their work. Uh, and 
And so I, that, that is what essentially motivated me to continue doing that kind of analysis. Um, when I first started at GM, I was particularly interested in work histories because that was something that I had focused on for my dissertation with the farm workers. I was very curious then about how um, an individual's um, uh, relationship with work changed over the life course. Um, when I got to GM, uh, I was often speaking with younger people uh, and some who were seasoned uh, employees of the company, but but I would ask them to describe their their work history. You know, how did they end up at General Motors? How did they end up in the particular position that they were in? And so I got some sense of where they came from, uh, what their background and training was, um, what they liked about their work or disliked about their work, why they were still in the job that they were in, uh, and what was it that might propel them to move into a different kind of position. And so to just go back, <clears throat> we'll come back to that in a second, but just to circle back to, to getting to GM. So you said that they were more or less looking for an anthropologist. Yes, that's correct. Were you the first anthropologist? Yes, yes. there was a... A vice president of research at the time by the name of Bob Frosch. Bob had been, um, had worked, he was a physicist by training, and he had worked in a variety of places, including as NASA administrator. Um, at the time uh, that he became a VP at GM, um, he had a connection with Woods Hole, uh, in Massachusetts, which is the Oceanographic Institute. And there he met up with an anthropologist who told him, you know, you really should get an anthropologist at GM. And, um, and he explored that idea further and then um, suggested to the department that I ultimately became part of that they should get an anthropologist. At that time, the department had sociologists, psychologists, mathematicians, um, I'm trying to think who else, uh, a demographer, uh, economists, and so on, but they did not have an anthropologist. Uh, the way they justified bringing in, or one of the ways they justified bringing in all these different disciplines was that they said that they had a common way to communicate, which was through statistics. Well, I was not a statistics person. <laughs> <laughs> I um I've always struggled with math and um and anything that even smells of a number um but nevertheless they felt that the qualitative aspect of um understanding work and how work gets done inside of a corporation could benefit from my expertise and so I ultimately was the one they hired that's great. Now, you're kind of fortunate there that they were looking for that because as we know, not many companies don't realize that they may want to even hire anthropologists. Right. And I will probably come to that a little bit towards the end of this conversation when we talk about the Career Readiness Commission. Um, but 
despite you sort of having that in and them having an interest, you know, even if like say the hiring manager is interested, people don't always end up in organizations in which everybody appreciates the skill set. Now it sounds like you might have ended up in a nice team, you know, other sort of academically minded individuals, yeah. and maybe there was some nice camaraderie there. But how did the organization as a whole respond to you kind of, you know, doing some deep hanging out? Uh, well, it was mixed. Um, you know, I did what I was trained to do, which was to uh, do field work inside a corporate setting. Uh, and typically that involved, you know, spending time with people, listening to their stories, interviewing them, uh, just engaging them in conversation, observing how they did work. Um, and through that, um, all that data that I was collecting, um, I would write research reports, internal research reports. And then I often had the opportunity to prepare those for an external publication. Um, some of the internal clients really liked what I had to say because it was helpful to them. They, they perceived. Others were concerned because some of what I identified um, basically made them feel vulnerable. They were, they, they may have known about some aspects of what I learned, uh, but they also may not have understood what was going on culturally within their own organizations. In either case, they could end up being quite embarrassed. But the way things worked at GM at the time, it was our job to produce these research reports, which were um, fairly neutral, um, just laying out the evidence for whatever the set of issues were, and then providing a set of recommendations to... Um, hopefully address some of these issues so that the organization as a whole would perform better or would be more effective. And so, you know, most people I've talked to so far aren't in organizational roles. I mean, we're all in organizations one way or another, but many people have been in advertising or marketing, broadly speaking, sure. UX, of course. So, we don't always have the opportunity, you know, in those roles to to overtly study our own cultures, our own work right. cultures, right? Many of us are observing and kind of maybe doing that work. Like especially, say in my in my own case, in a product management role, I'm dealing between multiple different teams, mm -hmm. right? And so there's there's a lot of opportunity to sort of learn from the different teams, sort of learn the languages, the rituals, and sort of be the culture broker, but. In a lot of our roles, we're, we're really focused on you know, whether that's users or consumers or whatever it may be. And so since this is new for this podcast, I'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe some of those dynamics that you just kind of touched on. But um, I remember reading you know, one of the stories that's now been quoted a number of times, how you'd be sort of riding around with people who would be like hoarding parts. <laughs> Right, it's now sort of famously quoted in a few books, I believe. Um, so, if you're riding around with those individuals, you know you are 
closer to the work that is happening um, than maybe those that you're reporting back to. And so, you know, this gets into, I guess, ethics of kind of how do we treat research participants to a degree, right? And and who are we working for? And so how did you, I know you said the reports were relatively neutral, but how did you go about managing some of the dynamics that could creep up around such things? You know, you're sort of there helping out those people who are kind of close to the work, but yet you're sort of the people hiring you are sort of sitting in corner offices. So any problems there, anything that you learned that, you know, maybe listeners would find interesting and helpful? Well, I was a researcher. And I had been hired by GM Research uh, to be a researcher. And they expected me to uh, work hard and to produce um, reports that would help improve the way in which the, f- the firm uh, operated. So I took that fairly seriously. And I... I um, would collect data from people just as you would in a community setting. Um, I would analyze that data, and then I would try to explain what I think I had learned from that data. And then once all of that was done, I developed a series of recommendations which I thought would help improve the way work got done in a particular setting. Those reports were then peer-reviewed by my colleagues at research. So could have been an engineer, it could have been a sociologist. You know, we usually had two, three peer reviews. And we would have to take those comments seriously, just as you would in any peer review process. So that that um, those insights from these other researchers who were not anthropologists were always very helpful to me because it forced me to think about the questions that they were asking and how I knew what I thought I knew. And it also helped me to lay out the data in a way that would address the concerns that they raised uh, based on the initial draft. So the final draft of the report was always better than the initial draft. So in a sense, I was independent largely from the internal clients for whom the the research was was being conducted and my job was to be a scientist in fact that's that's what my title was when i started out my title was senior research scientist so there was no sugarcoating there was no um there was just, you know, displaying the data, telling the story, using quotations to bolster whatever the argument was, um, relating it to the literature, just as you would in a scholarly article, and then um, tying it up at the end with the key insights and what should happen now, what what actions uh, should GM take. So. The way you describe it, it really does sound quite scholarly, mm-hmm. which you know probably 
I, I can't speak for many places necessarily, but today it seems maybe a little bit more relaxed with those that I talk with. Um, of course, there's collaboration, there's feedback, um, but your process really sounds quite academic in yeah. its own right, mm -hmm. and and really uh, probably very. Um, you know, you imagine you're very fortunate for having such a process. In fact. Um, you know, that must kind of continue to shape you and improve you as a researcher after you leave the academy. And so that sounds like a really nice experience. But I think what strikes me about that is I think many people listening today wouldn't, you know, so many people that I talk to sort of mention how, you know, you're not talking about theory these days in business and, you know, you need to distill it down to a quick deck where, you know, you're you know, it needs to be brief and to the point and sometimes even just leading with the insights or even recommendations and then maybe backing into the meat of it. And so it sounds very different than it is for many people today. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do you think that culture still exists at GM or was that just time, you know, right time, right place to have that opportunity? Well, I, I don't actually know how significantly things have changed since I left GM. But I can tell you that while I was there, we were all considered researchers. Um, GM had, you know, one of the premier labs in the United States, perhaps in the world. Um, and there, you know, it was very much aligned with, say, the national labs um, in the U.S. Um, uh, with other with other kinds of organizations uh, that were um, unrelated to academia, where research really drove what was happening. Um, and, and the ideas that researchers developed were considered quite quite helpful and quite important within the riding around with the uh, material handler. Um, we were, we spent a lot of time looking for parts because the inventory system uh, was basically not, not functioning at all. And uh, when parts would be delivered to the docks where they came into the plant, um, they, they could have been, put in a place where they shouldn't have been put. Uh, they might have been delivered to the wrong dock because there were many different docks in the plant. Um, and so the idea of trying to find where the parts were and then deliver them to the line workers who needed them was a, a challenge. It was really a challenge, particularly when a part was what they called hot, meaning that it was needed immediately uh, and without it, the line would shut down. So all of that is to say that the research that we did that I did helped to un helped to um, uncover some of the problems that existed within the company that people preferred not to talk about. There was always this emphasis in General Motors on putting a positive twist on the place where you worked, putting a positive twist on, on um, the employees that worked in a given place, the work that they did, 
the outcomes of their work. And I came in and I didn't know what I would find. I wasn't purposely looking for things that, that might have been dysfunctional um, or not very productive. But I did find that on occasion. And, uh, and so the reports reflected what I found. And um, that particular report that you're talking about was actually when I was quite a young researcher. So I would have been at GM maybe two years or so, maybe three years, but I think it was just two years. Um, that was presented to um, uh, the GM board of directors because it was so striking what I had discovered. I didn't necessarily consider it to be um, amazing, although looking back on it, it, it really was. I mean, when you find evidence that people are hoarding parts, that they're blaming each other, um, that there's this a massive trading network on the plant floor to make because you might need a part that is hot and you can't get it and you don't want that line to shut down because of you, because you don't have the necessary parts to complete your shift. Um, all of that was just brand new information for senior leadership in the company. And, um, and so, you know, that was part of my job to, to help the company transform into what it really needed to be rather than what it was. Now, to pivot forward in, in your timeline, so you've, you know, your founder, principal of Culture Keys, you now not only have to sell, you know, the findings, if you will, and maybe the recommendations, but you also have to sell yourself and anthropology yes. as the founder, you know, as the, the entrepreneur who is essentially selling, you know, the business services. So that's obviously a little bit different of a role when you stepped into that than maybe being you know, in a research organization. And so what kind of challenges and opportunities has that presented to you in life? Uh, well, each client is different. Each client has different expectations of what they think they want. Most are unfamiliar with what an anthropologist does. And so there's a great deal of educating that you have to do through conversation uh, with the client. Um, and sometimes these discussions take quite a while before they're willing to sign a contract. But I think what helps is being very clear at the outset that you are working for that client. So this was now different from what I did at General Motors. At General Motors, my job was to work as a researcher for research. If I found things in the company that were awry for whatever reason, so be it. And there was, you know, th that my job was to be as objective and neutral as possible. When I step into a different role, um, pitching to prospective clients, I am now working for that client. And so what that client wants I try to um, give through the tools and methods that I have available to me 
in the time frame that the client has in mind at a cost that the client is prepared to pay. So it's it's basically first learning what the client thinks the issue is or issues are, and then talking with the client about the ways in which we might approach that problem, uh, how giving, giving the client a sense of how long that might take in order to come up with something that was useful to the client, uh, and then ultimately preparing a budget um, that would um, help the client to understand what was involved in the work that I would do or my colleagues and I would do for that client. So the prep time, uh, the data collection time, the data analysis, data management and analysis time, uh, delivery of a final PowerPoint, because all of our work is done through presentations, not through prose reports. Um, and, and as part of that PowerPoint, working with the client to figure out recommendations that would be feasible given the context in which that organization operates. Now, those are a lot of skills that not everybody learns in school. Right. And again, mm -hmm. we're going to talk about that very yes. briefly or in, in a few moments. So we'll get there. Um, I, you know, my guess is you obviously Given your time at GM, you probably touched a lot of that those skills in in one way or another, or you know, or adjacent to some of those skills. But for many coming out of school, figuring out what to charge, you know, or even how to name themselves, how to start a company, how you know, how to figure out how to charge, how to write a contract, all of that is very new. And so, was there anything for you that was really that you were really unsure of when you were going out on your own, despite your you know very um, you know, your great deal of experience at GM? Was there still anything as an entrepreneur that was really kind of scary and that you were unsure of? Well, methodologically speaking, no, I wasn't at all concerned. But from the standpoint of project management, um, there, there were questions. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know the appetite that the client had for the kind of work that I could do. And so, therefore, I had to educate the client on what would happen and how, um, how I would conduct the work and what the likely results would be or the likely recommendations. Not necessarily specifics, but just talking generally about categories of, of things that I would identify and, um, and, and be able to demonstrate support for. Um, in terms of a budget, um, I guess what I learned was over time, you figure out for every given hour of data collection, you probably need at least four hours, if not a little bit more than that, of data management analysis and prep time to write up the final presentation. So given that ratio, that then helped me to, um, first of all, again, educate the client. This isn't just me being able to process all this stuff in my head and just spit it back. 
Uh, but no, I, I actually spend a lot of time trying to make sense of what I've heard from all these different people that I have interacted with and all these different uh, events or, um, or uh, just day-to-day activity that I've observed. And I have to put it all together. And I have to, it has to make sense. It has to sing, if you will. It has to be able to, to um, uh, reveal what is going on in that work environment. And if there are things that are counterproductive, then what do we do about that? And so that's when the recommendations become critically important. And so in the process of selling, you know, maybe you're at a stage in your career, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, maybe you have, you know, an ongoing book, maybe people get it at this point, but at least when you were starting out, or maybe nowadays when you have new customers, are they coming to you because they're looking for an anthropologist or are they, they're coming to you because they have a problem. They've been, they've heard that you can sort of address it and then you're selling them on, you know, the, the sort of, you know, anthropology. Usually the latter. I would say uh, occasionally people say, yeah, I think I need an anthropologist, but many people don't know exactly what an anthropologist would do. Uh, They don't necessarily understand what a business anthropologist uh, who works in organizations would focus on. But if you have even two minutes to talk to that person, you can make them understand very easily, very simply uh, what exactly you would do. You know, you're trying to understand what's going on in this work culture, what's going on in this organizational culture. Why is it going on? And is it is it helpful for the organization uh, or to what extent is it helpful or detrimental to the organization? So once you explain that to them, all of a sudden they say, oh, OK, I get that. And then you can proceed and talk about more specific details. But, you know, I spend so much of my time just educating clients. Uh, And so I think any uh, recent graduate um, who is entering into um, the world, the workplace, whichever workplace, um, and is using uh, the background that anthropology gives us, um, you do spend a lot of time educating people. And there's... Tremendous yeah. benefit to that, um, to what anthropology offers. And there's also tremendous benefit to think of yourself in a way as a teacher. You're trying to help people understand what you might be able to do to help them. So it's a different kind of help than, let's say, a physician would offer someone, right? But in a sense, we're organizational doctors. We, uh, we, we understand what goes on organizationally. You know, uh, yeah, that's a nice way of putting right. it. Uh, one one no. tricky part comes when the client wants to restrict um, what you might do, and maybe for very good reason. Maybe because um, that client feels that the rest of the organization uh, won't accept someone like an anthropologist coming in to try to understand what's going on. Uh, And so you often have to work with that client and negotiate what might be possible. 
And that's actually kind of interesting. I remember a number of many years ago now, I did a, a project uh, in a hospital local to where I live. Uh, and the two people I was working with at, at the time, one was a business person and one was a physician, and we were pitching a project to this hospital. And so the physician and the business person got out ahead of me and said, well, we can do a survey. And I'm like, hold on, people, you know, <laughs> surveys are a bit problematic. And they said this in front of the client. So, okay, I guess we're going to do a survey. But I was able to then negotiate and say, okay, look, we can do a survey. Anthropologists do surveys. But it will be more valuable to you as client if you use some alternative method that either precedes the survey or builds on the results of the survey. So my proposal would be, let's do something in addition to the survey. And we ended up doing focus groups. So we did the survey first, which was all electronic. We got some interesting insights from the survey. And then we came back with a series of four focus groups, one of physicians, one of nurses, one of the billing staff, billing and, and administrative staff, uh, and then one uh, for the clinical staff. And the results, first of all, it was iterative, which I liked. Secondly, it was, um, it was more it was it had had higher validity because it wasn't just one method it was two methods um, and third we were able to compare and contrast the results from each of those methods the survey results with the focus group results and so negotiating with a client is normal and in fact, if you're not negotiating with the client, it would be a little bit strange. I mean, you may have a client who understands what an anthropologist could bring and has a feel for what might what method might work best or set of methods might work best given the given that person's uh, presumed issue. But it would be unusual if that happened. And so, typically, the anthropologist finds. Um, him or herself just negotiating to get the client the best possible outcomes uh, for, for whatever the issue is. You know, your job is to help the client. We're in a service pr sure. profession here. Yeah, no, exactly. And so now you've brought up a lot of things in there. You know, you mentioned a little earlier project management, budgeting and estimating has come up, negotiating, essentially storytelling. There's all these skills. And so I think that's a nice jumping off point, you know, to get into uh, the Career Readiness mm -hmm. Commission. So new initiative that you've started, very much focused on, you know, raising in my words, sort of, you know, the, the skill set of practitioners, students, teachers, you know, bring them all together, sort of helping everybody learn and develop so that we can produce more practicing anthropologists, you know, that are really ready to go into the field and have some of these skills. Now, again, that's my wording, not well, yours, but well said. Um, so I get that. 
it's now talked about a lot that there is a need for this, but what at this moment made you do this? You know, especially given all the different organizations that do exist and the other sort of initiatives that might be adjacent. Why now, you know, and what are you what are you trying to do in your words? Yeah, well, the Career Readiness Commission came about uh, for for reasons that were actually related to the Malinowski Award that I received. I needed to write uh, a talk that I would give uh, for the Malinowski Award. And so in the process of writing about that, writing that talk, I decided I would focus on organizations because anthropologists as a rule do not study organizations. They study communities that are not bound by organizational walls. And I thought that was just strange. Uh, I thought there, there's, we spend our lives, most of us, inside organizational settings, whether they are physical settings or networked settings. But that's where many of us spend the majority of our days, and yet we're not studying them. Why? What, what, what's, why is that? Um, and so I wanted to first make the point that organizations are worth studying. And then separately, I wanted to make the point that there's no preparation that occurs in, under, in, in any undergraduate or graduate program to work in an organizational setting. You, you're taught about anthropology and some of the applied programs actually provide you with some skills that will be useful in whatever job you end up in. But no one was talking about the kinds of things that I thought were really important to try to understand how organizations functioned and how they could function better, um, to, to um, understand organizations as organizational cultures uh, where there are processes in place to help people get the work done. And then, of course, uh, work practices that may or may not be consistent with those processes. So I put together my talk, and at the end of it, I raised the challenge that we need to do a much better job in preparing future graduates at whatever level to enter the workplace and enter into organizations. They should, first of all, be reading the practitioner literature that is out there, the scholarship that exists. And there's a great deal of it uh, written by practitioner scholars, as one example, um, who have spent a lot of time in organizations and studied organizations or studied their suppliers or their customers. So that was one aspect of it. And then secondly, I said, and we need to be preparing students for the job market, whatever job market they choose to enter. Not everyone wants or can be an academic. Someone with an associate's degree is not going to be an academic nor is someone with a bachelor's degree, nor is someone with a master's degree. The only people who might become academically based for their careers 
are PhDs. And there are so few jobs that we need to focus on what we know. And we know that most anthropologists will not get an academic job. So why is it that we continue to do the training as if everyone would end up in academia? I just thought that was inappropriate and incorrect. So let's start training people to use their anthropological skills in whatever job they end up in. The knowledge that you learn as an anthropologist, studying what others have done, comparing your own work with others' work, um, understanding holism, understanding ethnocentrism, applying um, methods for given research problems, all of that is critically important. Um, and we should be doing it on a regular basis in organizational settings so as to prepare students for the world of work. Um, and that can take many different forms. It can be a class project where you have a real life client. Uh, it could be starting an applied anthropology course where you have community engagement, some work being done, let's say, uh, for the city uh, or, for, um, uh, or for a community group within the city, a group of elders, for example, uh, where you get to practice your interviewing skills uh, or you get to cover a series of events, whatever it happens to be. Get students out there learning to apply their skills so that when it comes time for them to enter the job market, they, they know what anthropology is, they can articulate its value, they know which methods will be most useful under certain circumstances, um, and they can do a good job in whatever, whatever position they hold. So that was the concept behind the Career Readiness Commission. All of that was conceived before we actually started, which was in May of this year. The, there is sort of a sunset clause uh, with the commission. Um, we, we said at the beginning that this was going to be a one-year effort. And it's a one-year effort to create some fundamentals of how practitioners do the work that they do. Uh, Typically, every single group that we have is focused on gathering insights, uh, mostly from the practitioner community, about the work that they do, the resources that they wish they had had, um, uh, how they frame up what they do for others, whether it is for a prospective client whether or a prospective employer or a newspaper reporter, or their own colleagues. Um, but everything is really focused on helping students and early career professionals be able to explain the value of anthropology, broadly speaking, to others. So that you can get a job, 
and keep a job. Yeah, really nice. And so, you know, the thing that strikes me about that is it's not necessarily saying that students need to get jobs as anthropologists. It's that they need to get jobs and they should realize how to bring their anthropological training to it to add value in whatever role they're in. Exactly. And I'd like to, if we have a minute, I'd like to tell you a story that I heard uh, um, at our last commission meeting. Uh, we, I had invited uh, um, a professor from Rollins College, uh, which is in Florida, uh, to come and to speak and to share how that department has um, introduced what she, she called professionalism into their courses. And so I'll just give you one example of what she talked about. Her name was uh, Shan Estelle. Um, Brown. And what she explained to me was that for the capstone course in your senior year, uh, they changed it completely. They said to the students, you're going to go out and you're going to look for a job description that appeals to you. So go and find the job description. And then once you have that, you are going to prepare for an oral exam on why you should be the job applicant that gets hired for that very job. And you will make your case in front of a small panel of the teaching faculty from the anthropology department. When she told me that, I thought to myself, my God, this is brilliant. So what does the student have to do? The student has to go back to 101. What did I learn in 101? Oh, yeah, I learned about holism. I learned about comparison. I learned about all these different concepts. So that has to feature into my argument for why I should get this job. And it helps the, the whole process of basically a cumulative exam, uh, but, but demonstrated orally, positions that student to basically be as persuasive as possible so that they end up with this imagined job. And apparently, according to, uh, to uh, Shanastelle Brown, um, uh, it goes pretty well. The students are quite nervous because those who realize, realize it's a cumulative exam. They need to bring in everything that they have done, their volunteer work, the concepts from anthropology, how they applied those concepts, their methods. You know, they have to pull it all together and make a case for themselves. And then they've got this panel that they have to talk in front of but you know what once they get through it they are so proud of themselves because they've actually demonstrated not only to the panel but to themselves that they can pull this off and now they are really ready for the job market in ways like no one before them in at rollins college was ready for the job market they've done it once 
They've already made their case. And so now it's going to be much easier to make their case a second time and a third time and a fourth time with other prospective employers. Yeah, it's it's an interesting model seeing, you know, how to how to apply all that knowledge to a you know a real world problem, which is finding a job. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's um, you know, obviously we need more of that, but we're not certainly not going to be able to turn the tide of, you know, academia, you know, turn the ship real really quick. And so I guess that gets a little bit to why you're also building a repository of resources that you're going to have out on the site. And so for those who might first, you know, might just be learning about the Career Readiness Commission, you want to just give a brief explanation of what will be on the site and what kind of resources students, you know, young professionals, even really any professional or or teacher might find there? Yes. uh, uh, And the the website uh, was done by a guy named Matt Arts. (laughs) And, and he has done a wonderful job uh, helping us to organize um, how we present who we are as a commission and what we do, and then what the products of our work have been. So there is one tab called resources, and under that tab, we will have uh, all the commission-related materials um, all the presentations that we've done, um, all of the uh, meetings that we have held, and so on. And in addition to that, we will have resources for, that are unrelated to the commission, but just resources that that pertain to anthropological practice. And so those resources may, may be in the form of um, uh, job readiness skills, they, they w- might be in the form of methods. Uh, they might be in the form of um, instances that have been written about by practitioner scholars of their own work. I mean, it's, it will be a mixed set of um, resources, not just articles, but podcasts, um, training materials, um, workshops, uh, any number of um, resources that could potentially be useful to students, to teaching faculty, uh, and to practitioners. So we're very excited about it. Uh, we're in the process now of, um, of uh, building that repository. Uh, at the moment, I think we have 200 or so resources, but that number will jump uh, by a lot. Uh, over the next several months. Yeah, great. Well, um, looking forward to working with you to to get those resources on the site. Um, but do you want to give the domain? I'll, I'll of course link to it in the show notes. But sure, it's um, anthro career ready, all one word. dot net. Great. So I'll link to that. Um, is there anything else that, you know, you're involved in so many wonderful things for the anthropology community. Um, is there anything else that you think any, everybody should know about? Uh, well, I, I guess stay tuned. Um, the best is yet to be, as they say. Uh, we've, we've got more than 200 people working on the Career Readiness Commission now uh, who are actively engaged in learning about it and in spreading the word about it. 
Uh, and that's up from, you know, the original two people, Aryl Nolan and myself back uh, in May when we launched it. So um, I think that this issue of preparing students for diverse workplaces, diverse in terms of the kinds of work that they might do, um, is it, it resonates with people. Uh, it's long overdue. It was, it was long overdue when I graduated uh, back in the mid eighties uh, with, uh, with my degree. Um, at that time, there were 400 people applying for every academic job, crazy. And we see those same numbers today. So we've not made much progress uh, if you look at it from, uh, from those, uh, those statistics. But um, I think that because there's such a large body of practitioners out there now working and working you know, with whatever amount of training they have in anthropology, uh, it's, um, it's only going to grow from now on. And uh, anthropology can have um, a much more sustained impact in industry, in nonprofits, in government, and of course in academia uh, going forward. Yeah, well said. So maybe we should leave it there. Um, Elizabeth, thank you for your time. Where can everybody find you if they want to get in touch? Sure, just uh, you can email me. Uh, it's my name, elizabeth.briody, B-R-I-O-D-Y, at gmail.com. And you can also look at my website, which is culturalkeys.us. Great. Well, I'll link to that as well. So again, thanks for coming on. It's always nice to talk to you. Thank you, Matt. Take yeah. care. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.